0: He is a Catholic gentleman, a convert to the Catholic faith, and also a shepherd, a bishop of the church. Up next, we'll be joined by Bishop James Connolly, uh, who will be talking about manners, masculinity, and a lot more. Stay tuned.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us in another episode of The Catholic Gentleman. We are your co-hosts, Sam Guzman and John Heinen. If this is your first time, please remember to click that subscribe button. If you're listening to us on a podcast player of your choice, click subscribe there as well. If you're on Apple or um, Spotify, we'd love it if you left us a review, gave us four or five stars. That does help the algorithm and extend this reach. And so as Sam just mentioned, today we are joined by Bishop James Conley. He is a convert to the Catholic faith and a native of Kansas. I lived in Olathe for a couple of years, so maybe we'll talk about that. Uh, Regarding his conversion, during his junior year in college at the University of Kansas, he converted to the Catholic Church in 1975. His mentor and teacher in the integrated humanities program, and it was Professor John Senior, who is also his godfather. And many of our listeners will uh, recognize that name, John Senior, with uh, Clear Creek Abbey. And so, hopefully, we'll get to talk about some of those things as well. He was ordained to the priesthood in 1985 and has served in the church in various capacities as pastor, college campus minister. Director of Respect Life Ministries, Theology theology Instructor, Vatican Official, and now Bishop. He was elevated to the Bishop, uh, Rick, by Pope Benedict XVI in 2008, and he is now Bishop of Lincoln, Nebraska, and we are so grateful and blessed to have him join us. Bishop Conley, how are you doing today?
2: Great. Great, John. Sam, it's great to be with you. Great to be on the podcast. Thanks.
1: Awesome. So one of the first things that we want to talk about is your uh, your life, your youth growing up. Um, obviously, were you, was your family devout Christian? Are uh, you converted to Catholicism? We'd really love to hear that process from childhood to, in your case, Catholicism and ultimately the priesthood.
2: Sure. Happy to. Um, yeah, I grew up in, uh, the suburbs of Kansas city, um, and, um, not in a very religious family, although they were God believing we didn't go to church a whole lot. We went to a Presbyterian church, not because of any sort of Calvinist leanings, but because the preacher was a good preacher and, uh, my mom liked him. And so she, My dad wasn't really religious at all, and so um, my mom took myself and my sister to church there um, a few times a year, you know, certainly on uh, Christmas and Easter, but we weren't, uh, uh, you know, I had really no religious formation at all, Um, although in junior high school, I did go through this inquirer class for a while, but uh, so my my really uh, childhood up through high school was... um, was just pretty typical of the 1970s. Um, I didn't have any, I wasn't, a, you know, I wasn't an atheist, but I probably was an agnostic, if anything. If, if somebody had asked me, you know, is there a God? I said, well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't have really a, a thought. On it. I was just kind of into whatever everybody else was into in the 70s. Uh, I was a big Grateful Dead fan. So I uh, was kind of of that uh, kind of portion of the culture, rock and roll and uh, everything that goes wrong, goes along with that. Um, and so I was really um, just kind of very typical of a kid in the 70s. Um, so I went off to the University of Kansas for college after I graduated from high school, went to a big high school, public high school in Overland Park, Kansas, um, and about 715 in my graduation class. So it was a big, huge suburban high school and uh, went off the University of Kansas because a lot of my friends were going to KU. I was a big basketball fan. Um, so, you know, I, 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 went off really kind of to do, to enjoy college life. And, um, but I did uh, by God's providence um, enroll in a program, which was for freshmen and sophomores called the Integrated Humanities Program at the time it was called the Pearson Integrated Humanities Program, which was named after the um, the hall where the where the program was headquartered, Pearson Hall, and it was a great books program for freshmen and sophomores, and. Um, It um, satisfied all of your English and speech and Western Civ requirements. So I have to to be honest, I I probably enrolled in it because it was a way to knock off some courses that were probably not very, uh, you know, taught by graduate assistants and were not very interesting. And this program caught my eye and a lot of, you know, different friends of mine because it, uh, it it was kind of subtitled An Experiment in Tradition. And uh, it was uh, heavily endowed by the National Endowment for Humanities, which is not a very uh, friendly organization, very progressive liberal. But it was just edgy enough that it caught their attention. So it was taught by three professors, uh, John Senior, Dennis Quinn, and Frank Nellick. And it was basically a survey course of the great books. So we read over the course of two years the Greeks, the Romans, early Christian writers, and moderns. And um, it was an integrated program, like integrated studies. So literature, history, poetry, music, culture. And um, the idea for the the professors, they they wanted to integrate all these subjects into one to see it as a whole. And um, reading the greatest that's been ever written and said uh, in our Western Uh, Civilization and um, the professors were very gifted teachers. They were all tenured professors at the university and um, very, very good teachers. They team taught the course, so um, they sat up there, and there was a big, huge lecture hall. Uh, There were about 150 in my class, my freshman class. So it was a big, a big uh, kind of theater. It was actually in um, the religious uh, studies. Uh, building, and um, they team taught this course, and there were lectures twice a week. Um, we couldn't take notes; they had wanted to have our desks clear, so we could just listen. And then, in addition to the two lectures, there was a discussion class that would just meet with smaller stu- smaller group of students. And then there was a, a, a rhetoric class, and then there was a poetry class, and we would memorize reams and reams of poetry because they realized that uh, students in the early 70s had nothing in their imagination except for my case Grateful Dead songs and other things television jingles and things like that so they wanted to give us an opportunity to kind of fill our minds and imaginations with great um, poems uh, throughout the history of the English language and so um And then we also started every lecture with a song, so they wanted to teach music as well, mostly American folk songs and English ballads and things like that um, that we could memorize and just sing on our own. So the idea was to fill the imagination with truth and goodness and beauty through literature and poetry and music and um, extracurricular activities. um, and um, it just built this great kind of culture of, um, of friendship uh, among the students, surrounded around, surrounded and focused on the great ideas of Western culture. So I entered into that program not knowing really what was going to happen to me, um, but just because it was interesting. And, and, it, um, and I met a lot of great friends and a good buddy of mine who we were in high school together who's now the archbishop of oklahoma city sam i don't know if you've met archbishop coakley but uh, we were on the same baseball team when i was in the seventh grade my dad was the coach we went through high school together we were roommates all four years of college and um then uh both became priests in the diocese of wichita and then he became a bishop before i did and now he's he was bishop in salina kansas and now he's archbishop of oklahoma city And uh, so our kind of lives have paralleled through um, those years. But we both fell in love with the program. He was already a Catholic, um, but he, you know, maybe not the strongest Catholic, but he came back in a strong way and had a big influence on my conversion. So I went through the program and after two years and in my third year at the university, I began asking those questions, you know, what do I really believe? And yeah, I guess there is a God. And, um, after reading these great books and seeing the history of religion and, and, um, you know, I knew there had to be a God. And so I just set out on my junior year to find out where he was and really very kind of very quickly. Um, I made a few pit stops along. I was going to the Lutheran church for a while and then the the Anglican church um, began reading a lot of C.S. Lewis, and that kind of led me to the Anglican Church, which was sort of nice, you know, you've got the history and tradition, the smells and the bells, but you don't have all the demands and, uh, the, you know, the, the obligation and the um, kind of conviction of the Catholic faith. And so I was there for a while, um, and then finally, um, you know, decided, uh, finally discovered through God's grace that really it was the Catholic Church that really could claim to historically go back to Jesus Christ. So that was one of the things that kind of convinced me of the Catholic Church, is I wanted to find the church that really could prove to me that, it, you know, that it's the original Church of Jesus Christ. And so that historical claim that the Catholic Church has is, was really powerful for me. Um, but, and, you know, looking back on, I tell people that I kind of read my way into the Catholic church kind of like mm. Newman Newman was a big influence Cardinal Newman now Saint John Henry Newman um but more so and he would say the same thing I think more so than the intellectual conversion it was really the the witness of friends living out their faith and uh, Catholic lives um that really convinced me that this was where I needed to be um and so then in halfway through my junior year um I um I we did it was before the RCIA program, so we just had these instruction classes at the local parish. In fact, there wasn't even a, a St. Lawrence Center, uh, which was eventually the Catholic Center there at the university. But before that, it was just the, the local parish priest. There was only one parish in the city of Lawrence. Now there are three. Um, and so he would have these instruction classes, and mostly university students, mostly students from this humanities program, you know came into the church by by the hundreds during this period of time from let's say 70 1970 to 1980 and um and so I was one of those in 1975 uh, uh, yeah it was 1975 um, at the end of the first semester of my junior year took these classes I actually was going with the my room my other roommate now um we were three of us archbishop coakley and myself and Uh, a gentleman by the name of Alan Hicks, who was the founder of uh, the uh, St. Gregory's Academy in Scranton, Pennsylvania, first headmaster there. Uh, He was dating a girl, and they were both uh, getting in these religious arguments. And so through a course of decisions, I decided I would go to these instruction classes and take these, these two girls with me, one of whom was the girlfriend of my roommate, and try to sort these questions out. And um, at the end uh, of that semester, I decided that uh, I would become Catholic. And uh, that's when I converted. And I didn't tell my parents. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I I don't recommend that. But I came home from uh, the semester and told my parents that uh, I'd become Catholic. And of course, my Mom was happy because I got my hair cut and I was kind of cleaning up my act. And she thought it was great that I was going to any church. But my dad, you know, he thought, well, you've just given up your freedom to think on your own. And uh, the Catholic Church is now going to make all your decisions for you, son. And so um, if that's what you want to do, you're old enough, you're 19, then that's your decision. And um, so, uh, you know, that, that was it. He, he he didn't agree with it. but to kind of make the, and I'll stop talking after this, but, you know, fast forward about, uh, gosh, 15 years I'm a priest and my parents decided to become Catholic and, um, through the influence of a lot of things, but, uh, that's a whole nother story. But I remember my mother and father had never been baptized. So I had the grace and privilege of baptizing, confirming, and giving them first Holy communion. So my dad's there at the baptismal font. And I, and I know it was, it was the Holy spirit, uh, you know, uh, right before I poured the water, I said, now, Dad, if I do this, you know, you're going to give up your freedom to think on your own. The Catholic Church is going to make all your decisions for you. Uh, are you sure you want to do this? And, of course, he remembered 15 years earlier what, what he said to me. And he said, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. And so um, anyway, that's sort of that was, you know, next to my ordination, but my baptizing and confirming my parents was kind of the greatest joy of my life. Um, so they became very strong Catholics. Both are deceased now, but uh, so that was another example of waves of people coming into the church through this program, you know, parents, spouses, friends. I mean, who knows how many? I know we counted it up one time over the 70s. There were 300 conversions from the program, but um, there's many, many more that we don't even know of. You know, that were influenced by that whole thing
0: that is absolutely incredible wow (laughs) but the power of 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 dedicated professors who have a vision um for genuine holistic education not just to fulfill some government requirement or something or to check the box that they covered some topic but who really want to form the whole person um and life-changing as you can attest um Absolutely beautiful. So, um, thank you for sharing all of that. As in incredibly rich, and we just love hearing s- stories uh, of just how people were called to, uh, first of all, convert to the Catholic faith, but also then to the priesthood and to uh, to serve in that capacity. So, I'm curious. You know, um, you had a profound conversion and in, in many beautiful moments as a priest. What have things been like for you as a bishop? Uh, You know, I know people have maybe a lot of curiosity about what bishops do and what that experience is like. Um, So what's that been like for you uh, since you transitioned to a bishop in 2008?
2: Well, I was blessed um, to have experienced the church at the universal level. I went to school after I was... As I was ordained a priest, I served in a parish as an an assistant pastor, a parochial vicar for about four and a half years in Wichita. And then my bishop sent me to get a degree, an advanced degree in moral theology in Rome. So I was able to go to Rome and live there for um, a couple of years um, to get this degree and then um, came back and was assigned to the uh, Newman Center at Wichita State University and also to be the pro-life, uh, I was pro-life director before I was sent away, but then I came back and was, um, director of the pro-life office for the diocese and really got involved in the pro-life movement, um, at that point. And, um, and just, uh, really, uh, and, and, university students. Cause you know, I always have, most of my priesthood have been spent with the young adults because, um, that's when everything happened for me while I was in college. And I just felt that that was a very, I felt called to, to, um, in fact, last night I had about 60 young adults over at my house for a uh, barbecue with the Bishop. And, uh, at that age, you know, so much happens between, let's say, college and 30, you make decisions, good and bad ones that shape your whole life. And, um, so I've always felt drawn to, uh, campus ministry and to young adult ministry. Um, and so, um, I, came back and served in that capacity for about another 4 years or so and then i was sent back to rome to work in the vatican for 10 years and that really kind of gave me an insight in kind of whether it's providential or not i worked in the congregation for bishops which is the dicastery in the in the holy see which helps the um, then at that time it was john paul ii and the nomination of new bishops so i got a Kind of got a, a view of what the um, the episcopacy was like uh, from the point of view of the of the universal church and the importance of um, of episcopal ministry um, in the history of the church. Little did I know I'd ever become a bishop, but um, you know, I, all I really wanted to do was you know to to be a parish priest and um, and to serve uh, the flock entrusted to my care and. and uh, in Wichita, and so I came back after that experience in Rome, and, um, and after ten years uh, working in the Vatican, and all and most of that time too. I, in addition to the work uh, in the Holy See, I was chaplain to the University of Dallas Rome Campus for about six and a half years, thirteen semesters, and that was a great blessing, you know, because because the job I had, like many that work in the Holy See, um, was kind of an administrative job, sitting in front of a computer and a desk job which is not so priestly. Um mm. and so my outlet was really my pastoral outlet was was with the University of Dallas and and that was a great experience. Um as you know John, I think you live in Dallas now and, and That's it's correct. It's, yes. great. it's a great a great university and they have a great study abroad program and lots and lots of graces of of serving those students for those six and a half years. And then I worked for two years for Christendom teaching and their Rome campus. So when I came back, um, you know, I was, I was, I was grateful for the experience in Rome and I just wanted to be a pastor of a parish. And I was, I was pastor of Blessed Sacrament parish in Wichita, Kansas. It's a great little, uh, I, I call it like a parish right out of Norman Rockwell painting, you know, it was this really, yeah really I, beautiful little parish in a little area called Area called College Hill, a little K through 12 or K through 8 grade school. And I was really very happy there as pastor for about two years. And then I was named auxiliary bishop in Denver. And, um, you know, it's, I didn't see that coming. And, um but, you know, I accepted it um, as part of God's providence. And The beautiful thing about it is I served under Archbishop Charles Chaput in Denver for four and a half years. And so he's always been, even before I was named his auxiliary, he's been kind of a hero to me as someone who has really had a tremendous impact on the church. um, and, And someone that we could look to always to be a voice of truth and goodness and beauty in our in our crazy world. And so I was. Mentored and kind of formed as a bishop under him in in Denver. And then he was moved to Philadelphia, and I was then in the interim administrator until Archbishop Aquila came in in the spring of or in the summer of two thousand and twelve. And then barely two months later, um, I was only auxiliary for him about two months, and then I was named Bishop of Lincoln in September of 2012 and then left Denver in November. I'll be coming up on 10 years here this November, um, 2022. So life as a Bishop has been different. Um, but the same, I mean, you're still a pastor of souls, but you're also a successor to the apostles. And so you have an added responsibility and that is a kind of a two edged sword. It's there's much more pressure and, um, and expectation, you know, on you as a bishop. And I've uh, enjoyed it, but also it's been a struggle for me. I, you know, probably know I took some time off for health reasons, uh, struggling with uh, anxiety and depression uh, leading up to a a leave of absence from November or December of 2020, no, 2019. So like I say, I, I took a leave of absence uh, in December of 2019 and then a couple months later the whole world took a leave of absence uh, for health reasons <laughs> mm-hmm. with the pandemic and so i was kind of off the job from December of 2019 to November of 2020 came back kind of dealt with those issues and uh, grew from those issues it was a very dark and difficult time in my life um uh, really a real test of faith and but i had so many people supporting me, praying for me. I had some good healthcare care uh, professionals, good spiritual director and a, a great bishop, Bishop Olmsted, who kind of took me in during those years, uh, that year. A good good buddy of mine, Bishop Jim Wall, who's a priest of Phoenix, um, where I went. I went and spent that time in Phoenix and came back and um, I've been back now a little about a year and a half. Um, so you know, to, to get back to the question, what's it like as a bishop? Well, like you said, that's it's there's a lot more responsibility and uh demands upon you. Um, but at the same time, there is also a great um kind of insight into um the universal church and so much good you can do as a bishop because you have this authority and uh governance part of your um, you know, as, as the three munis, or the three, three responsibilities of priest, prophet, and King to sanctify, to teach and to govern, but you're doing it at a much higher level. And so, um, you know, there's so much good, I guess, I guess the, 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 the gift of being a Bishop is there's so much, so much good you can do in a, in the diocese you're given, you know, because you have this authority and power, if you will, to, for good. Um, and at the same time, you've got this responsibility, which is a heavy burden. Um, especially now, I mean, you know, bishops, uh, <laughs> I don't think it ever was fun being a bishop, but you know, uh, it's, it's a little more, um, difficult being a bishop today in the Catholic church for a lot of reasons is the clergy abuse scandal and the mishandling of that by bishops. Um, and there is the, um, you know, the the governance, uh, the lack of good governance on the part of bishops. Um, like I said, I've had great mentors. Um, my own bishop in which saw Bishop Gerber, was a great mentor and good, faithful bishop. Archbishop Shapu, who I mentioned, kind of formed me as a bishop. And then here in Lincoln, I've had the two prior bishops, my Immediate predecessors are Bishop uh, Fabian Bruskowitz and Bishop Glenn Flavin were giants, you know, yeah. and they, that's why I think the Diocese of Lincoln is such a strong diocese is because um, of the, the, the years, decades of good Episcopal leadership, faithful to the church, lots of vocations to the priesthood and religious life, good school system, good liturgy. Um, and so I inherited that. And so one of my jobs is not to mess it up <laughs> and to uh, continue that, uh, that, her- that 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 great heritage um, and to build upon the foundation uh, that was laid before me. So those are kind of I know it's not very systematic, but those are kind of the um you know, and you get to see the whole church at action, in action you know um, as a pastor you have your flock of your parish and the families um that you um, minister to but as a bishop you've got I've got um 135 parishes you know and 147 priests and 100,000 catholics that uh, are part of my um portion of the of the lord's vineyard and um in one sense you know it's it's heavy on administration so you don't you're not with the people as much, although like last night I had all these young adults over in my house. So you have opportunity like that. Um, but uh, but a lot of it is heavy on administration. And that's probably my least favorite thing about being a bishop. I don't like I don't like sitting at a desk and, you know, having to do a lot of paperwork, which ends up being a lot of what I do. I like to be out and about and um, with the people. Yeah.
1: Well, I really appreciate that. I appreciate your humility and your vulnerability um, and and sharing some of that with us because it has to be an incredibly difficult time to be a good bishop today uh, with the social media, with the noise of the world, with um, competing podcast influencers um that are are not making uh your job necessarily easy so i appreciate that very much um there's a couple things that you brought up that i i have a lot of uh curiosity for but i'd like to just um talk briefly about the liturgy, uh, for our listeners who don't know, I was very blessed to go and see uh, the, the seminary of the fraternity, the priestly fraternity of St. Peter, uh, Latin mass order. Many of our listeners, um, attend those parishes, uh, throughout the, um, North America is within, um, Bishop Conley's diocese. I was blessed, uh, many years ago to go to the ordination. Uh, it was like a three hour ordination. I unfortunately got, uh, saddled with a side, uh, I say, unfortunately, but God's will, I was on my knees on concrete for quite a long time. Uh, But that ordination, which you ran in Latin was so beautiful, probably the most beautiful liturgy that I've had the blessing of going to with their scola and with, you know, all of that. So I want to thank you for that. But I also was blessed to go to a Nova Ordo Mass when I was in your diocese, and I had read Benedict XVI's Spirit of the Liturgy and really tried um, to embrace that um as a as a good son of the church and i found myself when i really fell in love with the church and becoming kind of a liturgical policeman who you would just see all these abuses everywhere and honestly one of my first experiences of going to a beautiful nova soto mass was within the diocese of lincoln and um and i didn't see any abuses and so there's a testament yes to your uh, predecessors and i've heard great stories about them but also to you and and what you've been able to. withhold within that diocese but I'd love for you to talk about the importance of the liturgy for men and um and the importance of good liturgy for good catechesis and formation if you would uh because it's obviously something that you're uniquely capable of speaking about because of the diversity of liturgies within your diocese.
2: Yeah, you're right John. I I like again I said I inherited a great diocese and one of the beautiful aspects about this diocese is that liturgically it has a rich tradition and Bishop Flavin, who was bishop from 67-ish to 92, those immediate post-conciliar years, was um, very, very concerned about the liturgical kind of revolution and the aberrations that uh, resulted from the that experimental period of 20, 25 years when it, you know, when with kind sort of open feel on the on the on the liturgy. And so he really was at very, very much a stickler on priests following the the rubrics of the mass and and no liturgical experimentation. And as and and he was very, very strong on that. So a lot of bishops who were kind of or a lot of priests that maybe were inclined to experiment with liturgy, they were either suspended or they left. And so as a result, um you know, there's, there was no liturgical abuse to speak of in this diocese, which I don't know of any other diocese that, uh, that could claim that, um, that there was just, and they, you know, they're all like priests are human beings. So there, there were priests that were, let's say, had more, maybe progressive leanings and ones that were more traditional, but because of the parameters there, they were all kept on the rail and on the rails. So there was not, nobody really got off the rails. and um, so. Liturgically, the, the the culture has been very faithful to the Novus Ordo, and then Bishop Ruskowitz, um, for example, Bishop Flavin never allowed altar female altar servers, so to this day we don't have female altar servers, and he instituted uh, the institution. The men was now as the Universal Church is is doing, but uh, instituted the ministry of acolyte and lector. So there's so we have men who are serving as lectors and acolytes, although we do allow women to read at mass and um, and also to take communion to the sick. So there's exceptions to that; it's not total. But as a result, um, I think the culture vocations grew um, because of this. You know, the armies of young boys serving at the altar, and a lot of the the priests and seminarians say that they first got the call or desire uh, serving at the altar. And um, so that, I think, has been borne great fruit um, with regard to vocations to the priesthood. And um, and then Bishop Ruskowitz brought in the Fraternity of St. Peter when they were looking for a place to found their seminary in the late 90s. Um, and uh, he was very welcoming and, and accommodating to them. Um, also, when Clear Creek, when the monks of Foncambeau were looking for a place um, they Lincoln was one of the places they looked at and some land that was uh, offered to them, but they eventually took Tulsa, chose Tulsa. So um, when the fraternity came and they established a parish, um, you know, this was really kind of the first exposure to the traditional liturgy that the diocese had. And it was welcomed really very well. It wasn't something that was sort of radically unique. Um, because there had never really been any liturgical, like I said, aberration. So it was the more traditional form of the liturgy. but it was and it was interesting that it was welcomed, but not you know, with any sort of great fanfare. It was just something that was almost seen as ordinary and which was good, I think. Um, and uh, the, the seminary was founded in uh, 1999. Uh, so they've been in operation now 23 years. And then at the same time, uh, providentially, um, Bishop bruskowitz also established a diocesan seminary called St. Gregory the Great Seminary for diocesan seminarians. And um, he was just sort of frustrated with the college-level seminaries, um, the first stage of formation, and so founded St. Gregory the Great uh, Seminary And uh, at the same time. So we've had a great relationship between the seminarians from Our Lady of Guadalupe, the fraternity seminarians and diocese seminarians here. And I've tried to really build that rapport. We have a lot of functions. We play sports with the seminarians from Our Lady of Guadalupe, soccer, basketball. We go over to their place on feast days. They come over to our place on feast days. And so we do have a lot of commingling. And it's been good for our guys. Uh, some have gone from uh, the diocese over to the Guadalupe fraternity. But some have come from fraternity to the diocese. In fact, a, a seminarian just last semester switched from fraternity to diocese. So, so you know, we keep score. They they owed us one, and they, we got it back now. So uh, it's a friendly. It's kind of a friendly rivalry. But I think it's it's also something that, like Benedict talked about, sort of a good cross pollination and mutual enrichment. There's some guys at our seminary who are really kind of drawn to the Latin Mass, and um, and then. Um, but it also, I think helps them appreciate the tradition in the history of the mass because they see it in the traditional form on a pretty regular basis, but getting back to the general question of liturgy, I think that, you know, the new evangelization has to be, um, I, I, I see it as three kind of threefold. One is, um, You know the 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 life of the Christian as a disciple of Jesus. So someone who is fully in love with the Lord and is a missionary disciple to bring that love into the world, but that has to happen um, with also a great liturgical experience because without that experience of the transcendence of the supernatural. You you simply just can't love. I mean, you you have to have um, a contact with the real with the real Lord, and we experience that in the transcendence of liturgy and the beauty of the liturgy. Well celebrated, the Ars celebrandi the well celebrated Mass, and people have that that transcendent experience every time they come to the liturgy and celebrate Mass. And then there's also the intellectual component, the apologetic component. You know that, that they have to know their faith and defend it. So that, that love and prayer, the liturgical experience and the intellectual experience, to me, those are three components of the new evangelization. And without, you know, all three, you're not going to be as effective. And so that's why I think that the liturgy and liturgical movement, the reform of the reform and the uh, traditional movement has drawn a lot of people into uh, the church and has drawn a lot of people into the uh, apostolate of, of spreading the faith so it's it plays a very important role yeah so the
0: the kind of the the rules the rubrics around the mass kind of ensure that that reverence is maintained and the, that beauty and transcendent experience um that meaning with christ in the mass is is preserved as best as possible it sounds like um and and that really then empowers us to go out and evangelize in a more uh effective way um once we've had that that encounter with Christ in the mass and the liturgy and and kind of receive that um you know at the at the end we always say go forth the mass is ended you know it's really the message being that uh, uh spread spread the good news now and now you you've received freely good now so yeah. um sure. there's beauty in that and um, but I want to talk about another kind of a form of of rubrics, if you will. But that's the idea of of manners. Uh, just switching gears a little bit here. We've talked about um, uh, kind of the importance of before the show. We were talking about the importance of of manners with between men and women, and you were kind of sharing about this uh, beautiful uh, formal waltz that would be held every year. Uh, there in kansas and how the men were expected to follow certain rules when they were you know asking a girl to dance and, and then when they were dancing to uh kind of uh maintain those certain rules and boundaries and manners uh but how that fosters uh, a healthy engagement between men and women so i'm wondering if you could just expand on that a little bit for
2: us uh and how important that is yeah, that's uh, like I remember mentioning the the extracurricular activities of the integrated humanities program, and one of which was probably the highlight of the year was the spring waltz. And the idea behind this, and it was also it was always student led, um, so the professors weren't involved in it, didn't get credit for it. It was some just extra cr- extracurricular thing that uh, we looked forward to. In the, in the fall, we had this big fair. We put on a fair called the Yankee Tank Fair. And then in the spring, we put on this big social event, which was the waltz. Um, The professors did um, encourage it because what they saw in it was a way to, uh, for the young students, 18, 19, 20 year olds, to to experience through dance um, a great gift. Uh, in Western civilization, and that is a you know a real formal kind of intricate, um, difficult uh, uh, kind of uh, poetic exercise of the body, and, and and you know traditionally dance, especially formal dances, have been part of the growing in maturity and becoming a gentleman. I mean, you know, it, it you have there's certain like you said rules that are expected you you have to be um you have to exercise manners and so the way that worked for us was that and of course nobody knew how to waltz you know we like i said i was into the great for dead so you know i didn't know how to waltz so we had waltzing lessons and so we had a couple of uh students who were exper- experienced in waltzing and could teach it older students and so we would have waltzing practice in the afternoons you know three four five times before the waltz just so we could learn these dances and um and it was fun you know we had a blast learning and they would ha- we'd have it on a i think probably then was a cassette tape uh, <laughs> uh which probably a lot of listeners don't know but i uh, have never experienced but you know we had to have music Maybe even it would could have been in vinyl i can't remember what we used to but we didn't have anything live until the waltz itself so students would uh, rent out the university ballroom and they would hire the university orchestra and the orchestra were mostly students too and they loved this because here now they were going to perform live these fantastic uh, Straussian waltzes that they've been practicing and and then you had this whole dance floor of you know a hundred plus people that were actually dancing to your music and uh, the idea was You got a dance card and had the names of six different young women. And then you would, uh, as the man, as the gentleman, you would have to go out and find this young lady. And she'd be sitting at a table and you'd have to go go up to her and take her hand and escort her out onto the floor and begin this waltz, which these waltzes lasted, you know, eight, ten minutes, six, seven, eight, ten minutes. And then, you know, you'd finish... You bow, she curtsy, and you would t- take her back to the table, and then you would you go go find another young lady to, to to do the next waltz. And so throughout the course of the evening, you really did. I mean, it, it was magical. You sort of took on, you became a different person in a way. You became this 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 gentleman, you know, who is uh you know taking this beautiful woman, who she's dressed in this long gown and. Beautiful, Uh, you're in this tuxedo, very uncomfortable, but it makes you kind of stand up straight and uh, behave. You know, watch your your every move, and um, and you go through this whole evening, and you're sort of transformed by the beauty of the music. First of all, the music, the beauty of your own bodies uh, together, um, trying to you know, like I say, poetry in motion, trying to trying to execute this difficult uh difficult uh, dance you know and trying to do it well you know you want to impress the lady you know and you want to you don't want to step on her feet and you don't want to you know uh, be a klutz but you also lead you have to lead she follows so you have to really take your rightful place as as the leader and um and and she follows you and um and so you you go through this whole evening. And it's just transforming um, uh, experience, and of course, there's the party, after parties, and the after after parties, and you know goes we w- w- you know well into the night, but this the whole evening, um, it like I said, it became the highlight of the whole semester, and it's at the end of the spring semester, so you're just getting ready to break for the summer, and it's kind of the culmination of the whole year, and then for several years we did these pattern waltzes where you would get like sixteen couples that would learn these kind of kaleidoscopic dances where, you know, if you really, I did it one year, I wasn't very, very good at it, but, you know, you really have to, you know, do all these different moves that are a lot takes lots and lots of practice, but the the, the rest of the, the people are up on the balcony watching from above and seeing all this, this these pattern waltzes going. And, um, that's a beautiful thing to see. And, and you really do feel like you've accomplished something very beautiful when you do one of those pattern waltzes. So um, so yeah the whole experience was to teach the men to be gentlemen and the ladies, the women to be ladies and and participating in something that you know goes back centuries and have been's par- been part of Western culture, especially in, in Austria and in Germany, um, of a beautiful um, you know, a beautiful expression of, um, of dance and music. poetry
1: yeah that's exciting and i just think that uh would be so fun to be a part of and honestly like you mentioned you mentioned leadership and that's what it does is it teaches men you know, removes them from a certain cowardice and into the role of of being leader and having to um, overcome their maybe natural tendencies or learned tendencies, and so uh, we lack that today in large part. And that's going to be my actual final question for you: Is that you know today we've got convenience, we've got digital noise, we've got uh, fatherlessness, we've got a lot of things competing worldviews that are attacking men and uh, those who aren't as blessed to be in the integrated humanities program that you were a part of, or really even have something um, like that, listeners on the show here, what, what what would you encourage, how would you encourage men to um, regain that uh, role as an authentic man in society, um, fighting the notion of toxic masculinity, or masculinity being toxic, and, um, and growing in holiness. I'd love to, I know that's a lot, but I'd love to hear from you, what thoughts that you've had, and and some teachings that you've offered to uh, men within your own diocese.
2: Yeah, good, that's a good question, and of course, you know, these, my contemporaries, you um, know, we didn't all become priests, it's just, actually a few of us, percentage-wise, so most of the men and the women, you know, were called to the vocation of marriage. So um, they raised families and now their, fa- their children are, are raising their families. So um, having had this experience, just seeing it lived out in the lives of my contemporaries who were called to marriage, um, that's been a big, big challenge uh, to, to kind of hand this on to their children and to their grandchildren. In the, in the evolving world in which you mentioned we live now because they haven't, uh, you know, they've been right in the midst of the world all these decades since we had this wonderful experience uh, now 40 years ago. Um, so how do, you, how do you navigate that in a world that's highly digitized and uh, this technocratic virtual world that um, is, uh, you know, removed from real, real things like that? Um, so, um, you know, it's a challenge and I think that you really have to be intentional about it. Um, we can't escape it, you know, the, you know, the, you know, our, our phones and uh, all of that, you know, we just, I, you know, I, I, would be irresponsible and selfish if I just said, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm going to absent myself from this. Uh, so it's here, it's here to stay. But I, as I was telling our teachers last week, uh, Uh, in our school system. You know, we're dealing with technology in our school system and the whole gender thing, like you say, leadership, men being men, women being women, we are can't just kind of it can't be business as usual. You know, the, the 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 stakes have been raised and we have to up our game because whereas maybe let's say 10, 15, 20 years ago, you could kind of go along your merry way and not really be forced into something that would be against your conscience, well now. Uh, it's 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 intruding right into our schools and everywhere, our culture, our media. So you really have to be intentional about it. But I was telling our school teachers, and I said, you know, I, I have to still look at your phone or a computer or an iPad like like a pen. You know, it's 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 an instrument. It's a very fancy, powerful instrument, much more so than a pen or a pencil. But most of the time, it's got to be in your pocket. You know, most of the time, it's got to be put away. Um, and that's the challenge because it's so alluring, and so much of what we do demands us to be connected. But we have to resist that temptation. And because the more time we spend in front of the screen, the less we be, less we're human. It dehumanizes us. And so real, real interpersonal action, that's why the pandemic was so terrible, because uh, not only because so many people lost their lives, but because we were dr- driven to this virtual world. 24 seven in, in isolation, out of community. So I think several things just to kind of sum it up, we have to build community, real community, you know, like young people say they'd rather text their friends than go out on a Friday night. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, you got to resist that. You got to get them out. You know, you got to be with your person to person, inner community, inner personal communication. Um, You have to be master of the technology, and so it doesn't master you. And then with regard to the gender thing, which is really the most insidious thing that's coming down the pike, I think, is that to not be afraid, there's where Christian anthropology really has to be deeply ingrained. The men have to know who they are, growing in virtue and formation and to really understand their own masculine virtues and not be afraid or intimidated to exercise those virtues you know um always with charity you know i mean men you know you can go off in a different direction and just be sort of a brute very masculine and very powerful but being very bad you know very very um you know not very virtuous um but but those manly masculine virtues uh, in charity and then women have to get in touch with their femininity too as john paul ii always talked about the feminine genius to know their feminine side virtues and cultivate those and be be uh, confident uh, and secure in those feminine virtues as, as men are confident and secure in their masculine virtues and to realize that this is the way we're designed you know and to be confident that this is the way human flourishing happens and joy, and peace, and ultimate contentment is in being who we're made to be, um, and, uh, and not letting the, um, culture confuse us, uh, to, to instill, um, lack of confidence, uh, be afraid to exercise our, um, our virtues, and, um, and to know who we are. And I think that's where, in our own spiritual lives, God reveals us to you know, to ourselves and who we are as men and women. And to to live that out, um, you know, in, in our culture today. Even, even in the midst of the, the wokeism that's so prevalent in everywhere we go, that wants us to be quiet. And wants us to kind of hide and be afraid to, to, to be who we're supposed to be for afraid of being canceled or being, um, mocked or even, uh, arrested for hate speech or something like that. You know, that's could happen. I mean, you know, I think that, uh, that we're coming to a time when, you know, we could be, especially priests who preach, you know, again with charity, but if you preach the truth, I tell people that here, said just simply being Catholic today, is countercultural. Just accept that. Yes. What we believe and what we stand for is going totally against the grain, and it's not going to be accepted. So don't think that you're going to blend in with the current culture. You're not. You're going to be. You're going to be countercultural.
1: Yes, no, I completely agree. And that's not bad. Thank you. Yeah, agreed. So thank you so much.
0: Yes. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Bishop Conley. This has been a a uh, wonderful conversation, full of wisdom, that uh, I'll be reflecting on further, uh,
2: and I know our listeners will be as well. So, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Really, it's been it's been a joy, and I am glad you guys are doing this. This is important, um, especially for those you know who tune in and, and listen, and and uh, you know can help help them, help all of us to understand who we are as men, as Catholic gentlemen.
1: Well, a uh, final thing is any place that I think you're on Twitter, right? Any place that men could go to, um, to hear more or learn more about you and your work, Bishop Conley?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm on Twitter. I don't ever look at it. Uh, okay. but, uh, they, 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 tell me I'm on Twitter and okay. I have someone, I have some people to do that for me and Facebook too. But, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where, and I do some writing as well. So, um, that can, can be found there. So, uh, um, but.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that very much. So, yes, thank you so very much for your yes uh, to the priesthood and then obviously to becoming a bishop and for joining us on this show. So um, as we like to end all of our episodes.
0: Be a man, be a saint.